Thank you, Sue. <clears throat> We're in Genesis chapter 11. As we've been studying through the book of Genesis, the whole book is, you know, the theme for it is origins. And this morning we're going to be talking about unstoppable. We're going to be in Genesis 11, verses 10 to 26. It's another genealogy. And you're like, oh no, bunch of names. <clears throat> and I'll do my best to pronounce them. But uh, then we're going to talk about uh, some application as a part of that. And so, in his book, An Unstoppable Force, Erwin McManus shares the story of how prayers resulted in what can only be called a miraculous recreation. While ministering in South Dallas, McManus's small congregation began to grow. Looking for a place to build a larger church building, the leadership spotted an acre of land for sale. Given its location near downtown Dallas, <clears throat> it seemed strange that the property was unavailable or was available. Excited at their good fortune, this small group of people, many on welfare, began to pray that the site would soon be theirs. Eventually, they were able to purchase the property after receiving financial help from an association of churches. As the congregation began the process of obtaining building permits, they discovered the property had been declared, quote-unquote, unbuildable. The acre of land in the prime location was nothing more than a worthless landfill. McManus grieved over this waste of precious time and money. He writes, We had bought an acre of garbage. Several core samples were taken. From what I understood, they went at least 25 feet down and found nothing but trash. All I could do was ask our congregation to pray with me and believe that God was with us and that he would even use the worst of human mistakes to perform the greatest of miracles. After months of prayer, a woman from the congregation told McManus that since they had asked God to turn the land into something useful, surely it had been taken care of. Feeling God's confirmation of her words, McManus asked for more core samples to be taken. This time the researchers found soil. McManus writes, How did this happen? Was it because the core sample was in a different part of the land, or could it be that God had actually performed a miracle and changed the landfill to good land? What I do know is that the same realtor who sold the property to me came back and offered me three times the amount he had sold it to me for once he heard the clearance to build had actually come through. What I do know is that the previous owners could not build on the property, but we could. What I do know is that we were told the property was worthless and unusable. What I cannot tell you is what happened beneath the ground at 2813 South Irve Street. All I can tell you is what I know and that is that God took what failure, my failure, and performed a miracle. Today, Cornerstone worships on that acre of land in a sanctuary built by our own hands. Isn't that cool? This is the unstoppable power of God, and we're going to be talking about that today. Many of you know that right out of college, Judy and I moved to South Florida. She was, uh, got a teaching position at a Christian school, and um, not long after we got there and we got our, our, our apartment all set up, ready to go, uh, we started hearing about Hurricane Andrew. Oh, we'd never been through a hurricane, so um, we didn't know what to do. We put all of our valuables in the bathroom like they told us to because the water pipes aren't supposed to, you know, everything's supposed to hold together in the bathroom, I guess. I don't know. So we put all the valuables in there, and I think just with the unstoppable power of Hurricane Andrew would have wiped it all out anyhow. Well, we did all of that. Um, Judy had a friend down there that worked at the same Christian school, <clears throat> and so her parents lived in, in West Palm Beach. It was an hour further north from where we lived and inland, and so we packed up, and we went and spent the night there, and in the middle of the night, I just remember the wind howling, and I look out the window, and we're two hours north of the eye, 
and the, the palm tree in the front yard is almost horizontal to the ground. Just phenomenal power that I'd never experienced before. We didn't know what we would find when we got back to our apartment. Everything was fine. Uh, this all happened the night before Judy's very first day of uh, being a teacher out of college. So she missed her first day. <laughs> but phenomenal power. And if you look down in uh, where the eye hit, you know, just total devastation and the power of the winds um, from this hurricane. <clears throat> so I can't think of a better example of an unstoppable force that I've experienced personally. More recently, we got a new dog just last weekend. He's a red bone coonhound, and he's super strong and powerful. He's nothing like our former dog, which was this tiny little lap dog um, that kind of just hung around in the house. This dog doesn't hang around in the house. He, um, I take him for a walk every morning out in the orchard. Or more, more accurately, he takes me for a walk um, out in the orchard. I just have to hang on for dear life. And uh, he's pulled me down twice now on the wet grass. And uh, I think I'm just going to put liquid soap on my body so that when it happens, he can just pull me home. You know, I don't have to worry about it. I'll just slide all the way home. <clears throat> but um, he's a powerful dog. And um, so anyhow, I'm just looking forward to this winter as well because I have a sled already. Um, and I hope we get some snow. That'll make my trips to the orchard so much easier. Um, but uh, Red is a powerful dog, and, and his hunting and tracking instinct is almost unstoppable. Boy, when we're going through the orchard, I mean, his nose is to the ground the entire time, and he's, he's just doing that number all over, and then he tries to go into the weeds to find uh, the trail that he's found or to follow that trail that he's found. I want you to think this morning as we go through this message, what unstoppable forces have you all experienced? Maybe it's been a hurricane. Maybe it's been an animal. Maybe it's been something else where you've seen this unstoppable force. And I want you to be thinking about that because, you know, God's power is so much greater than all of that. Pastor Mark mentioned last week that the narrative about the Tower of Babel actually occurred prior to the genealogy that I shared two weeks ago in Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 to 32. So the question that arises is why have the genealogy in chapter 10... Then the narrative about the Tower of Babel, and then another genealogy. Why not have the Tower of Babel and then the complete genealogy? Well, I'm glad you ask. <laughs> Shame's line through uh, Yoktan, and then the narrative of the Tower of Babel showed the sinfulness of humanity and the need for revelation or redemption. Shame's line through Peleg to Abram shows that human sin cannot undermine the determined progress of God's salvation for his people. That last sentence is from Matthew's commentary. What we learn through the second genealogy of shame is our big idea today, that God's plan of salvation is unstoppable. We'll see that at the end of the message. But would you bow your heads with me as we just commit this to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come to you today as people who are hungry for your word, people who desire to be transformed by your word, and today, Lord, we want to hear from you. And I pray that any words that are mine would just fall to the ground, Lord God, and not be remembered, but that your words would sink deep into our hearts, into our minds, and would transform us, that we may be more like your son, Jesus. So, Lord, come by your Holy Spirit now. Work in each heart and mind. We commit your word Back to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you look at the first part of verse 10, it says, this is the account of shame. And we've been talking about these different um, accounts. And it's, uh, the Hebrew word is toledot. And this is the fifth of the ten toledot statements that we find in the book of Genesis. And so what that toledot statement Hebrew means, it's the history of, so the history of shame or the, the generations of shame, the account of shame, the origins of shame. Um, and so let's just review really quickly. Um, the, the ones that we've already had up to this point. So in uh, chapter 4, uh, or chapter 2 of Genesis ch- verse 4 through chapter 4 verse 26, we see the account of the line of the heavens and the earth. And then in, in chapter 5 verse 1 uh, through chapter 6 verse 8, we see the account of Adam's line. So that's the second totally dot. The third one is the account of Noah's line. We see that in, in chapter 6 verse 9 through chapter 9 verse 29. And then uh, we just finished the account of the line of Noah's sons, shame, Ham and Yepheth in chapters 10, 1 through 11, 9. And then we're starting today this account of Shame's line. And then next week, we'll begin a much larger account that will extend from Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, all the way through chapter 25, verse 11, which is the account of uh, Terak's line. And so let me give you a little bit of background before we dive into this uh, about this particular genealogy. We're given the time frame of one um, Erpakshad is born, which is two years after the flood. Well, when we look back at Genesis chapter 10, verse 22, we see that our um, Erpakshad is third in line in the list uh, of um, uh, children born to shame. And so perhaps Alam and Ashur, those are the two that are mentioned prior to him, were born within the two years prior to Erpakshad's birth. That's my guess. It's a speculation. One other important note is the formula or the structure that's used in announcing each father and son. The father's name is mentioned and his age when the son was born. Next, we're told how long the father lived after the birth of the son. And finally, it's mentioned that the father had other sons and daughters. And so the formula is very similar to the one that's used in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 to 32, where we saw the genealogy from Adam to Noah. Both genealogies end with three sons mentioned. That's kind of significant. You see the same patterns coming up. The only differences are that the genealogy in Genesis 5 lists the total number of years that each father lived, and it mentions that they died. And so this sets the stage for the account of shame. So let's look at that in the second part of verse uh, 10 through 26. And here's what God's word says. Two years after the flood, when shame was 100 years old, he became the father of Erpakshad, and after he became the father of Erpakshad, Shame uh, lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. So you already see the structure there. Uh, when Erpakshad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shalak. And after he became the father of Shalak, Erpakshad uh, lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shalak had lived 30 years, he became the father of Aver. And after he became the father of Aver, Shalak lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Aver had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Aver lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he became the father of uh, Serug. 
And after he became the father of Serug, Rehu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And when he had be, uh, became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of uh, Terak. And when he became the father of Terak, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. Whew, almost there. After Terak had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And so, these three that are listed at the very end of this genealogy are important. All three of these men will have prominent roles in the continuing story of God's salvation. Abraham will be the father of the chosen family, as Kyle and Dillich uh, explained to us. <clears throat> they go on and explain that Nahor is the uh, ancestor of Rebekah, which will be Isaac's wife and mother of Jacob and Esau, and Isaac is the chosen line from Abraham. And then Haran is the father of Lot, and we'll see him pop up in the next section of Scripture. Now, we're not told how long Terak lived after having his three sons. There they don't mention that, and it also doesn't mention that he had other sons and daughters, but it's probable that he did. <clears throat> and so, that's the passage of Scripture. I'm like, well, what do we learn from this? What can, we, what can we take away from this passage of Scripture? It's another genealogy. It's just a bunch of names. And First of all, I just want us to think of this principle. God is sovereign, and he keeps his promises. And here's where I see that coming out in this passage of Scripture. One of the striking differences between the genealogy found in Genesis chapter 5 and this one in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 26, is the shortened lifespan of the patriarchs. Did you see it? It kept getting shorter and shorter. In the line from Adam to Noah, we see most of the patriarchs living well over 500 years old. Just go back into Genesis chapter 5. You'll be able to look at that genealogy there and see, man, these guys are living like 950 years, you know, a long time, 777 years. It's just crazy ages. In the line from Noah to Abram, Shem is the only patriarch that lives over 500 years old. Nahor and Terak live almost to 150 years old. They're just youngsters when they passed away, right? Compared to the other patriarchs. And so what we see happening is the Lord keeping his promise about numbering humanity's days. We saw that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. And then two verses later, the Lord says this. He saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And that's leading up to um, the flood narrative. God had not forgotten his promise to limit humanity's lifespan to 120 years. He was allowing it to happen naturally over many generations. And so what are some of the factors in the shortening of humanity's lifespan? The first one is sin. Matthews, in his commentary, says this, this, is the, uh, this, the author implies, is the consequence of encroaching human sin. Granted, sin has not altogether derailed creation's promise of procreation, but it has altered the power of life so as to diminish its longevity. So sin is, is resulting in the shortening of, of the lifespans. Kyle and Dillich, in their commentary, list two other um, conditions or factors. Environmental conditions. The flood altered the climate of the earth. Things were different now. The climate of the earth had changed as a result of the flood. And so it was allowing for shorter lifespans. And then just human behavior, the separation of the human race into nations after the Tower of Babel 
change the habits of men. And so God certainly kept his promise about shortening humanity's lifespan, but he has also made a promise about giving individuals a long life. So I don't want us just to be stuck on this negative. Let's talk about some positive, too, because God does promise long life. We see it in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, tells us this. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. In Deuteronomy, we see the Ten Commandments listed again, and it lists the same one. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And then we see it repeated in the New Testament. As Paul's writing to the Ephesian believers in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, he quotes out of Deuteronomy. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. This is a great promise. God kept this promise of shortening life, but he's also made this promise now, we'll see later when we get into Exodus and Deuteronomy, and the Ten Commandments, that they can live long. They just need to honor their parents. What does that mean, to honor our parents? Well, it's love and respect for them. It's different than obeying them. As children, we need to obey them. When we're in the house, we need to obey them. And obedience is doing what they told us to do, unless it goes against God's word. Honoring is a lifetime commitment. Respecting and loving our parents is a lifetime commitment. It doesn't matter how good of a parent they were, how bad of a parent they were. We still need to honor our parents. So honor our parents continues into adulthood, and even after they pass away, it's, like I said, a lifetime commitment and commandment from the Lord. So how do we honor our parents? Well, we speak well of them, right? Even as a teenager, when our parents don't know anything, When we're talking with our friends, we need to be respectful, and we need to speak well of them. Too often we don't do that, right? Too often we say, man, my parents don't know anything, and they're just holding me back, and I can't stand, you know, they're doing this, that, and the other thing, and we we just complain to our friends about our parents, and no, we need to honor our parents and speak well of them. We need to speak politely to them. That can be tough sometimes, too, when we're angry and upset. We need to act in a way that shows them courtesy and respect. The way that we work shows that our parents created that hard work ethic in us and taught us well. Providing for them in times of financial need, providing for them when when they're ill or unable to care for themselves. And then passing on their godly values to our children, our grandchildren, other family members and individuals. That's how we honor our parents. And in so many other ways, we can honor our parents. And so there's two next steps that I want to encourage you with today. You'll find them on the back of your communication card. They're also in the notes um, in the bulletin this morning as well. And you'll see them pop up on the screen. But the first one is this, and that's to claim God's promise of a long life by honoring my parents. Maybe you just need to recommit to that today. And then the second one is simply this, to worship the Lord for being sovereign and keeping his promises. Man, we should do that. I think sometimes we forget about the fact that he keeps his promises. And maybe we just need to be reminded of how he's done that for us. The second thing I see here is this principle. Human sin cannot stop God's plan of salvation. Aren't you glad? So we saw it through, uh, you know, through Yoktan, um, and then into the Tower of Babel, the sinfulness that happened there. <clears throat> and then we see that that didn't stop God's plan of salvation 
from moving forward. It was unstoppable. He was like, that's fine. We're going to keep going down this line until we get to Abraham, and then we're going to keep going through King David until Jesus comes. I like what Wearsby says. He says, the important thing about this genealogy is that it records the faithfulness of God in watching over his people and fulfilling his promises. What to us is only a list of names was, was to God a quote-unquote bridge from the appointment of shame to the call of Abraham. Then Matthews, I used his quote a little bit earlier, but I'm going to read it within context. He says this, Hence, while the threats of the flood and Babel are alarming, the return to the predictable pattern of genealogical descent after each shows that God's purposes for humanity are back on course. Human sin, despite its damaging severity, cannot undermine the determined progress of God's salvation for his people. That takes us to our big idea today that God's plan of salvation is unstoppable. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad it didn't stop with Abraham? Or it didn't stop with Peleg or some, you know, one of those guys. But his plan of salvation continued on and continues on from generation to generation. And perhaps there's someone here today who's struggling to embrace and believe that God's plan of salvation is unstoppable. We all probably have individuals that we're praying for about salvation, but those individuals continue to pursue sin and the things of this world. When we think about those individuals and the many prayers we've offered up on their behalf, we wonder, is God listening? Does he even care? I'm here to remind you and us that God does care. He is listening. He hears our prayers, but his timing is perfect. It's not always in our timing. He's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. I'm reminded of what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I like, too, what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. He says this of the Lord, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Aren't you glad that's the kind of God that we serve? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're so much higher. They're so much greater. And we can worship him because of who he is and what he can accomplish. And so what I want to encourage you today with the sins that our loved ones are pursuing right now will not stop God's plan of salvation because his plan is unstoppable. So keep praying. Keep talking with them. Keep sharing. Keep loving. And that takes us to our third next step today, and that's to embrace the truth that God's plan of salvation is unstoppable by continuing to pray for, talk with, and love those I live, learn, work, and play with. Don't give up. He is listening. He does care. I want you to walk away with that truth today. You and I serve a sovereign God who keeps his promises, and that should cause us to rejoice. You and I worship a Savior whose plan of salvation is unstoppable, and that should encourage us to press on. And God has commanded every believer to help him share the plan of salvation where we live, learn, work, and play. That's the great commission and the great commandment. Who in your sphere of influence needs to hear the good news of salvation? Maybe there's someone new that you need to talk to about Jesus and what he's done in your life. Bruce Thielman, in his um, sermon, Tide Riding, um, it's on 
a sermon on Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. He just shares this uh, story that I want to share with you as we close this morning. During the troubled years of the Second World War, the Italian forces were driven out of uh, Eritrea and North Africa. In an effort to make the harbor unusable to the Allies, the Italians took great barges, filled them with concrete, and caused them to, to be sunk across the entrance to the harbor. When the Allies entered, their problem was to remove those barges in order that the harbor might become usable. They did so in a very ingenious way. They took great gas tanks, not the kinds of tanks we have on our cars or in our homes, but those huge tanks that hold hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel and great oil refineries. They sealed those tanks so they would float, and they caused them to be floated over the place where the barges were below. When the tide was out, they chained the tanks to the barges. When the tide came in, the barges were lifted by the tanks floating with the tide. The barges were pulled from the sucking sand at the bottom of the bay. It was then a relatively easy matter to remove them and make the harbor usable again. Think of the power in that. The barges were chained to the tanks. The tanks were dependent upon the tides. The tides were pulled by the gravitational attraction of the moon, and the moon was moving in accord with the whole cosmos, the great sidereal system. Tremendous, unimaginable, dynamic power belongs to the tides. And our God is the one who controls it all. Aren't you glad? So again, this just talks about God's unstoppable power, and it's evident in this, um, this genealogy that his unstoppable power was used so that salvation could come to all of humanity. And we can praise the Lord for that today. And so, uh, as the worship team comes to the, 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 here now uh, for the closing song, would you just bow your heads with me as we just commit it to the Lord? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Even when we're not sure what we can learn from a passage of scripture, we thank you that you give us wisdom so that we might understand exactly what you want us to understand, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might be transformed by it, Lord God. I pray today that you would transform us, that we would worship you because of your sovereignty and that you keep your promises, Lord God. Would we worship you today because you are all-powerful and that your salvation plan was not stopped by the sin of the early patriarchs. We thank you that that salvation has come to us today. And Lord, we thank you that in just a little bit, we're going to have the opportunity to rejoice with those that have made that decision, that have uh, turned from death to life. And Lord, as they follow your example into believer's baptism, we just commit ourselves to you now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just continue to worship.